Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. We're going to be looking at the story of Jesus uh, cleansing the ten lepers. So turn in your Bible to Luke 17, verses, 19, verses 11 through 19. This is our last, uh, last passage out of uh, the Gospel of Luke for a few weeks. Uh, because, so next week, uh, we're going to switch things up a little bit. Jose is going to be preaching next week. I'm going to be uh, leading music because Jason's going to be out of town. Uh, the week after that, we're going to jump into a new sermon series on 2 Timothy. So uh, read through 2 Timothy if you can. Prepare your heart for our journey through the book that will probably last through August and September. But today, Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, I'm going to read it, and then we're just going to uh, jump right in and kind of work, work our way through it. Starting in verse 11, it reads, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise And go your way, for your faith has made you well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to come here and and meet us this morning. We ask you to, to teach us. We ask you to encourage us. We ask you to help us to encounter you in your word. Help us to submit to your word with humility. Help us to be blessed by your word and encouraged by it. Jesus, we, we humble ourselves before you and before your word, and we pray that you would speak to us through it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, starting in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. We've said this over and over and over as we're working through the Gospel of Luke, but it's just worth repeating every time. The better part of the Gospel of Luke is this kind of journey, this, this uh, road trip uh, between uh, Jerusalem in the north and Galilee, I'm sorry, Galilee in the north, where Jesus grew up and where he spent much of his time, where he inaugurated his ministry, where he spent uh, a considerable amount of time kind of uh, preaching and teaching and healing on the front end of his ministry, and then this journey down south to Jerusalem, where he was ultimately going to, to die, to, to, to die for the sins of, uh, of, of his, his people. And so that's kind of uh, starting in Luke chapter 9, working all the way to Luke chapter 19 is this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he goes kind of by way of, and at times, around parts of uh, Samaria. And so even just this first sentence, Jesus uh, on his way to Jerusalem was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. You, you can kind of think, I mean, the, the, these three regions, I mean, Galilee represents, uh, you know, small time, 
Small town, not a lot going on. Fishermen, can anything good even come out of Nazareth? People would outrage. Jesus, Jesus' life and his kind of mission and his journey is from this small town, nondescript place up north. He goes through Samaria that everyone hated. Everyone hated Samaria. Everyone hated Samaritans. They kind of saw Samaritans as these, you know, half breed, half Jewish, half Gentile, heretical, you know, sect. And so Jesus is going from kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, anonymity, and he's traveling through this area that, that's hated, and ultimately he's traveling to uh, the place where he's going to die. I mean, the, the, much of Jesus' life was kind of this, this uphill journey of just difficulty and hardship and pain and suffering and rejection. And he could have at any given moment, uh, you know, kind of tapped out and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to grow up uh, in this kind of, uh, I don't want to grow up in in Galilee because there's nothing good there. I don't want to travel through Samaria because I hate them. I don't want to travel to Jerusalem because I'm going to die at the hands of the religious leaders there. I don't want to do any of those things, so I'm going to stop. And Jesus is faithful to the mission that he came to do, which was to seek and save sinners. So he's traveling from Jerusalem through Samaria to, I'm sorry, from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers. We discussed leprosy uh, at length uh, several chapters ago in, in the Gospel of Luke, but uh, and given the pace that we're on, that was years ago. So it's worth just, just you know, revisiting. Leprosy uh, is, a, is a terrible, it was pretty much the worst thing that could happen to you in the ancient world. It was a terrible skin disease. You would break out in rashes and lesions. It would, it would have nerve damage. You would lose feeling of your limbs. You would get, they would go entirely numb. Your body would grow weak. You'd be unable to work. You would lose your eyesight and go blind. It was terribly, terribly contagious. So communities would quarantine people that had leprosy or people that they even suspected of having leprosy, and they would kind of set them aside, making sure that it wouldn't spread to the rest of the population. And that was, that was really what made leprosy so devastating, right? Medically, there was no treatment. There was no cure. If you got it, it was all but certain that that's what you were going to die from. Physically, it was awful. You would watch your body deteriorate right in front of your eyes. You couldn't stop it. You, you know, you'd notice minor scrapes and bruises, but you wouldn't notice them until weeks after you'd gotten them. Uh, and so your, your, you know, your limbs would just fall off or have to be amputated. Uh, I mean, leprosy in the ancient world was a death sentence, but specifically it was a slow, terrible, painful death sentence. But it wasn't just medical, and it wasn't just physical, but it was also social and, and relational. You were cast out. You were, you were relegated to a life of isolation and, and loneliness, left to, to essentially to die by yourself. Uh, or at best, to die in the arms of another person who had this terrible uh, disease that was on his way to an awful death as, as well. And Leviticus, Leviticus 13 is kind of the definitive passage on how the people of God interacted with leprosy in the Old Testament. Uh, it reads, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, if it turns to be a case of a leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to the priest or to one of his sons, and he shall examine him and pronounce him unclean. 
later in Leviticus 13, uh, if, if he, you know, if he thinks that, uh, you know, so he's been cast out for the health of the community, and if he thinks later on that, uh, that, that his, um, that his disease is starting to heal up, Leviticus 13 says that uh, he's to go back to the priest and say, look, I don't have leprosy anymore. Can you pronounce me clean? But during the meantime, when he's kind of cast out of the, of the community, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has this disease. He is unclean. And he shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Completely removed from human contact, never see your family again. You're given clothes that are intentionally gross and dirty and ratty on on purpose, right? You can't shave, you're not allowed to practice good hygiene, because if you do, if you were to inadvertently make yourself look presentable, then someone might mistakenly come close to you, and we can't have that happen, right? People need to know that you're damaged goods, and that they should not come near you. People need to know that if they come close to you, that is like a death sentence, And if people do start to come close to you, you need to warn them off. You need to to yell at them from a distance. I am unclean. I am unclean. Stay away from me, right? Save yourself. Leave me. Don't come near me. Cover your mouth. Make sure that nobody gets any of the contagions that that you have. You're in isolation. Live out the rest of your miserable life completely and totally and utterly alone. One commentator puts it this way, leprosy was a greatly dreaded and very dreadful disease. It was both disfiguring and fatal, and the ancient world's only defense against it was quarantine. Sufferers were forbidden to approach other people to prevent accidental contact. They were required to call out unclean. They had no way of earning a living. They had to depend on charity. The psychological effects of all this seem to have been as serious as the physical. People had an attitude to leprosy different from that of any other disease. It was defiling, and they were ashamed of it. This is not simply the description of an illness. It is a sentence, the purpose of which was to protect the community from the dreaded contagion. Lepers were victims of far more than the disease itself. The disease robbed them of their health, but the sentence that was, ex- that was imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name and of their occupation and their family and their worshiping community. To ensure against contact with society, lepers were required to make their appearance as repugnant as possible. That's what these guys are living. That's what they're experiencing. When Jesus walks into this village and there are lepers kind of standing at a distance, that's the life that they are living. Sickness, pain, isolation, loneliness, and certain death. And there's a sense in which sin... Uh, has leprosy-like characteristics, right? Sin, like leprosy, is deadly. It will kill you. Sin, like leprosy, will work its way deep into your body, into your soul, like a, like a virus that has a toxic effect on everything it touches, right? Sin, like leprosy, causes numbness and blindness. One of the, one of the most dangerous parts about leprosy is that it prevented you from being able to feel pain, right? 
which I guess maybe sounds, uh, uh, you know, fine on the surface, but, but you have to realize that pain is, is designed by God to, to help warn our bodies of a, a breach of security, right? I, I went to the beach a couple of weeks ago, and I cut my uh, foot on a seashell in, in the ocean, and I knew immediately because it hurt really bad. And, I, and by the, when I came out of the water and looked at it, there was a big gash in my foot, and there was like, you know, bloody footprints the, all the way behind me. But it wasn't a big deal because I, it, I experienced pain, so I knew that it happened. So I went home, I cleaned it, and I bandaged it up, and everything was, was fine. But if I hadn't have felt any pain, I would never have noticed. It probably would have gotten dirty, probably would have gotten uh, infected. One of the worst things that leprosy did was it kept you from, from being able to be aware of this, of this danger that was happening around you that pain is supposed to do. Sin has the same exact effect on the human heart. It, it, it has a numbing effect. It has a hardening uh, effect. It has a blinding effect. Right? The, the more steeped we become in sin, the more keenly aware we are of the sins of everyone around us, and the more painfully oblivious we are to our own sin and to our own selfishness. Leprosy, uh, you know, it had a relationally isolating component to it. So does sin. We're cut off from God. We're cut off from relationships with others. We're isolated and alone. So that's what these, that's what these lepers are experiencing. And in a way, that's what every person living in a fallen world affected by sin is experiencing something similar to this, to this leprosy. So Jesus is met by these ten lepers. They stand at a distance and they lift their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Right? We're not allowed to come close. We're consigned to this terrible life. So we'll just yell from a distance, please heal us. Please make us clean. We have no hope. We've been overtaken by a deadly disease. We're going to die. You are our only hope. Very reminiscent of, of the cry that sinners make to Jesus to be saved. I, I am ruined. I am dying. I cannot save myself. I need someone to save me. I'm all alone. No one is here to save me. I've been cut off. I've been left for dead. I've been completely ravaged by, by this disease called sin. I have no hope. Please have mercy on me. And Jesus does have mercy on them. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. So again, that's exactly what Leviticus 13 prescribes. When you, if you have leprosy, if you've been declared to be unclean and you, uh, you know, think that you might uh, have, have been healed or you think that maybe it was a misdiagnosis and you don't actually have leprosy, then you need to go back to the priest and you need to have him declare you clean again. So when Jesus tells these people to go to the priest, they've got to be thinking that we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Like, we're supposed to go to the priest once our, once our leprosy's been cured, once we've been healed, right? Once we don't have leprosy anymore, then we're supposed to go and have the priest declare us clean. But why would we go now while we're still suffering from the disease? We look like idiots. It's... It's reminiscent of, of this whole, actually this whole passage is, is reminiscent of the story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5. So that's some homework. 2 Kings 5, read it this week, compare and contrast this text with 2 Kings 5. Naaman is a general in the Syrian army. He's a big shot, he's rich, he's wealthy, but he has leprosy. 
And someone says, a, a little slave girl says to him, uh, there's, a, there's a prophet in Israel, he can heal you. So Naaman goes to, he packs up all, you know, tons of money and riches and resources and things that he can give as gifts, and he goes to Israel in search of this prophet who can find him. And he's expecting a, a grand exchange, right? He's expecting to say, I am a millionaire here, like, I, I need someone to, like, with all the pomp and circumstance, this grandiose kind of, you know, I need someone to just declare me clean and heal me and very spectacular and very sensational. And as a response, I'm going to give him tons of money and tons of gifts. But he gets to Israel and he gets to Elisha and Elisha says, if you want to be healed of your leprosy, go and bathe in the Jordan River. And Naaman's like, that's you can't be serious. That's stupid. That's, uh, I've got rivers back home. If all I needed to do was bathe in a river, I could bathe in a river and I would be healed. I don't need to bathe in a river. I need a powerful, impressive prophet to declare over me that I'm clean and I don't have leprosy. And I need to then compensate that prophet with money and resources. I need a, a big, fancy ceremony. But eventually, Naaman uh, does uh, this seemingly foolish sounding thing, right? His servant's like, come on, just do it. Don't be, you know, just, what, how, how bad could it be? What's, what's the problem? So Naaman uh, goes, washes in the Jordan River. Miraculously, he is healed, right? He does this seemingly nonsensical, foolish, stupid looking thing, and it heals him of his leprosy. And similar to what Jesus is saying, yeah, go do this, go to the priest and go, uh, you know, show yourself to him, despite the fact that you still do have leprosy and have no reason to think that your leprosy has gone away. Go show yourself to the priests. Consider, consider what it looks like to to come to faith in Christ. Consider how similar coming to faith in Jesus is to washing in the Jordan River if you have leprosy or going to the priest before your leprosy has even been, been cured. Consider, tell, tell me if this sounds like a good plan to you to, to, to solve the problem of sin and separation from God that we, that we have. There's, there's a sovereign God in heaven. He has created you. You owe him everything. He, right, he can demand from you anything that you want. He has given you you, uh, a righteous standard by which to live. He has given you laws. He has given you precepts. And you have transgressed his law. You have evoked his wrath, right? One day you're going to stand before this sovereign God who has total right and total authority to condemn you to hell forever. You're going to stand before him and you're going to give an answer for how you lived in your life. What's your plan? How are you, how are you going to escape his terrible judgment and wrath? The sensible thing, right? The, the intuitive thing, the thing that we think that we should probably do is going to be to just be as good as you can, right? If I'm going to stand before this God and he's going to judge me for how bad I've been, maybe I can be good enough that he won't be mad at me. Maybe if I do more good things than bad things. Maybe if I leave the world a better place than I found it, right? Maybe if I, if I you know, try as hard as I can to be as good and faithful as I can, then I can stand before God and I can have some semblance of an argument for why he should forgive me, why he should accept me, why he should not punish me forever. That's the sensible plan. If you do it, you go to hell forever. 
right? The plan that the Bible prescribes is to is the exact opposite. It, instead of summoning and galvanizing and, and you know grinding out and trying to be the best person that I can and then presenting this best version of myself to God and saying, I hope this is good enough. The Bible says, abandon all hope in yourself. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trying to earn God's favor. Instead, put your hope and your trust in someone else. Okay, so then what's the most sense? Uh, that makes sense. All right, fine. I'll put my trust in someone else, but let me find someone who is rich or powerful or impressive. Let me find someone who it makes sense to put my hope and to put my trust into. And the Bible says, don't do any of that. Put your hope in a dead man. Put your hope in a guy who died 2,000 years ago, right? Who was killed publicly as a spectacle. People laughed at him. People made fun of him. The whole world wrote him off as a joke and a loser, Put your hope in that. You're going to stand before God. At the end of your life, you're going to give an account for how you lived your life, and you have one shot. You have one shot to, to, to hope that you can escape his wrath, and that's the plan. God, I want you, I identify with this person who was slaughtered publicly and ridiculed and laughed at. It's, it's the, the gospel apart from the Holy Spirit changing our hearts, sounds ludicrous. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds as, as foolish as swimming in the Jordan River to be cured of leprosy. It sounds as foolish and ridiculous as going and showing yourself to the priest, even though you still have leprosy. It's, it's a fool's errand. There's no way it's going to work. Jesus says, go do that. Right? Go show yourself to the priests. Right? He says, I will sh- you're asking me for mercy. I will show you mercy, but I'm going to, to, to demand this of you along the way. I'm going to require this of you along the way. Right? Jesus, Jesus saves these lepers by his grace, by his power, by his authority, but he makes demands on them. He, he puts a prescription in front of them and says, this is what you have to do in order to receive my mercy. Jesus, conversely, or, you know, like, um, similarly, saves sinners by his grace. Right? There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's all of the credit and all the salvation, or all the credit, all the glory for our salvation belongs to Jesus. None of it belongs to us. That's one of the big themes of Reformed theology, is that God saves sinners. God is the one who gets credit for saving sinners. Sinners don't save themselves. Sinners don't get credit for having saved themselves. Apart from God's grace, no sinner would come to God. No sinner would choose God. God gets credit for, that, for their salvation. That's, that's Reformed theology. That's Calvinism. But Jesus does require a response from his people. Just because salvation is entirely of grace does not mean that Jesus does not require a response from his people. He does, right? Jesus saves these lepers by his grace, but he requires a response of them. Go and show yourselves to the priests. Jesus saves sinners by his grace, but he requires a response from them. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Trust in me as your Savior. There's a, there's a heresy that denies the fact that we uh, have to respond to the gospel. That's called hyper-Calvinism, right? Calvinism says God is sovereign. God saves sinners. God gets credit for the salvation of sinners. They don't get any of the credit or any of the glory in and of themselves. Hyper-Calvinism takes it uh, a little bit further and says, 
well, since God is the one who saves people, and since people can't come to God on their own, and th- then it must mean that, that our response to God in the gospel is totally irrelevant. That there's no need to respond to the gospel at all. That's hyper-Calvinism, and, and it takes it one step further. It says, furthermore, uh, there's no need to proclaim the gospel. Because you're, you're, you're calling people to a response, but the response is irrelevant. All that matters is God's sovereign election. In fact, hyper-Calvinism not only says it's, it's unnecessary to proclaim the gospel to the onlooking world, it says it's wrong, it's sinful, it's prideful to, to, pro, to proclaim the gospel to the onlooking world. How dare you tell a person to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus? How dare you tell them that if they do, God will save them? That's, that's above your pay grade. If, you, if, if God wants to save someone, he will, and it's none of your business, and you have no right to meddle in his affairs, you, you have no right to speak on God's behalf, and to tell someone that if they trust in Christ, they will be saved. If, if, you, if you do evangelism, then your ego is writing checks your body can't cash, right? Don't, don't do that, because that is, is bad. There's no response, there's no evangelism, God saves who he wants, and faith and repentance are of no consequence at all. That's hyper-Calvinism, and that's, that's a heresy that has been, been fought against throughout church history. The reality is, God saves sinners, God converts them, God gets the credit for their salvation, and God calls them to respond. God calls them to turn from their sin. God calls them to trust in Jesus, to trust in his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, to give them new life. Jesus says, I'll heal you. But here's how I'm going to do it, through a a command, through a prescription that I'm going to give you. And as you respond in faith, as you walk in the prescribed response that I'm calling you to, you will experience the grace and the healing that I am sovereignly giving to you. We're not saved because of anything we do. We're not saved because we stopped sinning. We're not saved because of some choice that that we made. We're saved by Jesus and his grace who then tells us that he wants us to turn from our sin and trust in him and experience the grace and healing that he offers to us. Verse 15, Then then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Ten guys are suffering from leprosy. Ten guys are experiencing that terrible life that we just looked at a few minutes ago. Ten guys are sent to the priest by Jesus. Ten guys are miraculously and instantly healed of their leprosy on the spot as they're walking. And of those ten, one guy comes back to thank. Nine guys go on their way. Nine guys want to keep going to the priest because they want to get a, a you know, they want a, a a notarized letter saying, I am clean. I'm welcome back. They want to get to their families. They want to re-immerse themselves back into their community. One guy thinks to turn around and seek out Jesus and, and thank him. And here's the, here's the spiritual principle that we derive from, from this. When God extends his grace to sinners... When God treats sinners better than they deserve to be treated, when God lavishes unmerited favor on sinners who deserve his wrath and deserve punishment, but instead they receive his grace, they receive his favor, when God gives his free, sufficient, 
overwhelming, miraculous, life-changing grace to sinners when God saves you from your sin and welcomes you into His church and gives you a new spiritual family and He reconciles you to Himself and now you're in a new covenant relationship with Him and with His people and He keeps you for it. When, when God does all of that, when God saves sinners from their sin, there is one response that is appropriate and that is gratefulness. That is, is thankfulness. You have been given a gift that you don't deserve. You've been saved from sin and death and hell, and you had no right to be saved from it. And the only response is to fall at Jesus' feet and give him thanks and give him praise. Sing to him and and worship him. Right? It's it, it's not an appropriate response to come to Jesus and uh, make demands. Right? I I want these things. Give me these particular things in this life. It's not appropriate to come to Jesus with a posture of entitlement. Right? Uh, I should hope that you would have given me salvation, Jesus, by, based on how good of a person I am and how much I deserve it. Right? Not demands or, or entitlement. The only appropriate response to receiving God's grace and God's salvation from Christ is gratefulness. Right? Lord Jesus, you saved me when you did not have to. You died for me when you were under no obligation to do so. You gave me your righteousness when I didn't deserve it. You took my sin from me when you had no reason to do so. You invited me into your presence and into your kingdom when I had no business being there. I owe you my life. I owe you everything. Thank you. The only appropriate response when Jesus saves you is to be grateful, is to turn from your sin, trust in him, and give thanks. Our, our flesh, right? Our, our natural inclination is to just gobble up, to devour blessing after blessing after blessing from God, like a child at a birthday party, tearing open one present, moving immediately on to the next one and tearing that one open. And God calls us to stop and to, to take stock and to look to Him and to be thankful, to, to, enjoy the, the, to enjoy the gift that He's given, but then to let that gift of salvation direct our attention to the giver of the gift and, and cultivate affection in our heart for the giver of the gift. Jesus saves us. Jesus calls us to repent and believe the gospel. And then the only appropriate response is to be like this man and fall on our feet uh, in gratefulness and to thank him for his glorious grace. And then look at this detail. Now, he was a Samaritan. I alluded to that earlier. Jews hated Samaritans, right? It was like, they're, they are, you know, they're worse than Gentiles. They're half Jewish, half Gentile, but they're worse than Gentiles because they're like Gentiles posing as Jews, trying to, you know, be, they, they're claiming that they worship the same God as us, but they don't worship God in Jerusalem. They don't worship, they don't read the Old Testament and see it as authoritative. They've disregarded much of God's words. So we, there was a, just an intense bitterness and hatred between Jews and Samaritans. That's why, the, that's why the parable of the Good Samaritan is so shocking, right? Why Jesus tells it, it's got shock value. And it's why this, this, this circumstance right here is so shocking that the only guy with, with the decency and the spiritual awareness to come back and thank Jesus was a Samaritan. 
Right? We can presume that maybe the other guys, the other nine, or at least some portion of them were Jewish because Jesus seems to marvel that this Samaritan was willing to come back. But of course, the fact that the Samaritan was healed in the first place uh, shows us that, that Christ's grace is given freely, it is given indiscriminately to anyone and to, to everyone, right? Jesus didn't pick the two or three lepers that were the most highly educated, right? Uh, or that were the most righteous or the most holy and choose to heal them. He didn't, he didn't pick the ones who were, you know, of the best lineage and who could trace their family line back to Abraham and choose to save them. Jesus extends sovereign grace to any and all of them freely and indiscriminately, provided that they humble themselves and obey his prescribed means of receiving his grace. Sinner, saint, rich, Poor, male, female, white, black, American, un-American, right? Republican, Democrat. Jesus' grace is extended freely to any... No one is beyond the reach of God's grace, provided that they turn from their sin and trust him to save them from it. And then in verse 17, Jesus answers, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, the Samaritan? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus' expectation is that I saved ten people, and it was miraculous, and it was, uh, it was incredible, and it was glorious, and it was grandiose. His expectation is that they're all going to turn around. They're all going to come give thanks to God. They're all going to give thanks to Him. He can't believe that one out of ten did. And further than that, he can't believe that the only one who did was the Samaritan, the guy who had the worst theology, the guy who had the most deficient view of God. The last one that you would expect is the one that turns around and thanks Jesus for saving him, right? No one is outside of the reach of God's grace, even this Samaritan. On the other hand, these nine guys uh, might very well have been Israelites, might very well have been well-trained in the scriptures, might very well have been the people that you would expect to respond uh, by thanking God, and they miss it. He heals them, and they miss it. They miss the significance of Jesus. They, they have a one-track mind, right? They're, they're, they're so caught up in uh, uh, my healing, and I need to get to the priest, and I need to be declared clean, and I need to go about my life. I need to kind of get back to where I was before I had leprosy. They're, they're so uh, caught up in this one-track mind of what's most important to them that they miss the most important person that's ever walked the face of the planet. They miss Jesus himself. They miss an opportunity to come sit at his feet and thank him and ascribe glory and honor and praise to him. They miss the chance to give Jesus the credit he deserves for saving them and healing him. They're so focused on the gift that they lose sight of the giver. And that is the big takeaway of this text, right? As Christians, we are a people that have received grace from Jesus. We have received unmerited favor from Jesus. We had spiritual leprosy. Right? We were dying from a deadly disease. We were blind and numb to the deadly peril that we were in. We were running headlong toward hell. We deserved the wrath of God. And Jesus saved us. Jesus calls us. Jesus gives us very clear directives. Turn from your sin. Repent of it. Confess it. Own it. Mortify it. Kill it. 
Turn away from it. And then trust in Christ. Lean on Him. Put the weight of your salvation onto Him. Hold fast to Him. And as we did, we were cleansed. We were healed. We were forgiven of our sin. We were reconciled to God. We were freely given the most glorious gift that we could ever ask for. Eternal salvation. Life with God under the rule of God. And now, like these lepers, we have the opportunity to respond with great We have the opportunity to leverage what little time we have here in this life to give thanks and praise to Jesus. We have time to take the gifts that God has given us and let them direct our attention to God, the giver of those gifts. Let them cultivate affection in our hearts for God, the giver of those gifts. It's the, it's the only reasonable response when you consider all that Jesus has done for us. When you consider how Jesus left his throne in heaven came here for us, died on a cross for us, extended a free gift of salvation to us, gratefulness and thankfulness and worship are the only appropriate response. Singing to Him, praying to Him, ascribing glory and honor to Him is the only appropriate response. And that's what we have an opportunity to do right now, right? We have an opportunity to sit under God's Word and hear it and let it affect our hearts and let it bring conviction of sin and let it stir affection in our hearts for God. And then we have a chance to come together and and collectively fall on our face at the feet of Jesus and sing to Him and sing of Jesus' amazing grace. That's what, that's what the gathering of God's people uh, together is, is all about. Hear and receive and enjoy the grace of God and then respond with gratefulness and with, with worship. So let's pray together and then let's, let's sing together. Father in heaven, we... Thank you for your glorious grace. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for healing the leprosy in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to obey the call of the gospel, to walk in what you have prescribed for us. We pray that we could turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, and then I pray that we could be grateful. We pray that we could be grateful, that the, that the gift of salvation would direct our attention to the giver, and that we would respond in worship. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.